So one of the things that I, I, I laugh about with Christians, because as many of you know, I wasn't raised as a follower of Christ. I became a Christian in early college, is that I learned quickly that Christians have their own language. Have you ever noticed that? They got their own language. In other words, we use buzzwords that the world doesn't use at all, and that quite frankly, I learned very quickly, have no meaning at all outside of a Christian worldview. So theologically, for instance, we use words like justification, sanctification, the blood, the word, trinity, spirit, incarnation, propitiation, substitutionary atonement. I mean, all the words that some of you know what they mean, some of you don't. A whole litany of phrases that we use to communicate truth about God that, again, outside of a Christian worldview wouldn't make much sense. And then we have a bunch of practical words that we use in our daily language. Words like fellowship, sharing, small group, Sunday school, ministry, discipleship, all practical words that we use to talk about the activities that we do as those who are trying to follow Christ. I just marvel that we have a language of our own, and for the last 30 years I've become very fluent in Christianese. If you ever want to know what a word means that a Christian uses, you can probably ask me and I would know. And by the way, that's not a bad thing that Christians have their own words. It's not at all. As many of you know, Jesus called us to be in the world but not of it. He started a movement, a spiritual movement on this earth that was unique and set apart. And so there are concepts about God that the Bible talks about, things that we're to do as followers of God that are naturally going to have their own descriptive words and phrases. And probably one of the most often used and yet I think most misunderstood words that Christian use, Christians use is the word discipleship or its corollary, disciple. I, I hear it all the time. I hear people say this, I'm in a discipleship group. I'm being discipled by so-and-so. I think the church should emphasize discipleship more than it does. I think we need a stronger discipleship program. I'm discipling so-and-so right now in my life. I mean, we throw this word around like candy at a parade, and yet many times when I hear it, I wonder if the average Christian really knows what the word means. I wonder if we could define what a disciple is or what discipleship is, and I want us to wrestle with that today. I want us to wrestle with exactly what we mean by discipleship. In fact, in about 35 minutes when we wrap up here this morning, if you listen at all, I promise you, you're going to know what discipleship means, you're going to know what a disciple looks like, and you're going to be able to intelligently choose whether that is you or not. So, so as we dive into this, try this on for size. In Jesus' time, historically, the word disciple simply meant a follower. So look up here on the screen. Disciple equals a follower. So Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day used the word to denote young apprentices who were following a particular rabbi or Jewish leader in order to learn from them how to be a good Jew, a, a proper follower of Jewish traditions as laid out in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus came along and called 12 men to be his disciples, what everybody understood that to mean was that they were followers of Jesus. They would literally follow him around Palestine, learning from him, living with him, eating with him, and learning how to be a follower of God in the way that Jesus brought us. And so don't let this pass you by, folks. Discipleship, in its most simple and rudimentary form, simply means a follower. Its core essence is bound up in this idea of patterning your life after the one that you are learning from. 
And so with this base understanding that a disciple is a follower, I want to share with you three things about Christian discipleship. Three things that the Bible makes clear to you and me that build one upon another in our understanding of discipleship and eventually lead us to the challenge of who or what are we going to follow in our lives. You'll see what I mean by that in a minute. So three timeless truths when it comes to this idea of following that the Bible gives us. And here's the first one. And that is that we all, and I mean all, follow something or someone. That's the first thing you and I need to own today in an intelligent discussion about discipleship, is that we all follow something or someone. And so look at how Jesus communicated this to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is inescapable. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So interesting, Jesus assumes here that in some way, in some form, we're all going to follow someone or something, that we all have some kind of master, to use his language here, that we will love and hold on to in this life. It's just that he's arguing that you can only have one ultimate master, as C.S. Lewis would say, only one first place thing in your life, everything else will take second or third place, and Jesus is going to talk to us as we go along here about who or what we choose. It's again like that old Bob Dylan song that some of you guys remember, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's Jesus' point. All of us follow something or someone. And I don't know about you, but I find this to be true in life. That everybody, even the greatest leaders of our day, follow something or someone. Even the most successful and publicly praised people of our day, from Bill Gates to Billy Graham, from Warren Buffett to Jimmy Buffett, from Hillary Clinton to Hillary Duff. Think about everybody that you know. They all are followers. I know, you never use them in the same sentence. They're all followers of something or someone. So whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a political leader, whether it's a business leader or an academician, all of us are following something or someone. We're wired that way. None of us are a complete island unto ourselves. We all follow something. You know, if you don't believe me, I want to share with you four general areas or types of people I thought about this week that most of us follow in some way or another in our lives. Four things that you can't ever get away from in life that we're challenged to follow. And the key as we go through this list will be to ask yourself, do I follow these things as sort of just a general second or third place category in my life, or has one or more of these things become an all-consuming, all-following thing or all-leading thing that I follow? It would be good for you to think of it that way. And so first, consider culture at large, what I call culture at large. In other words, the reality is, is that for some of us here today, we are simply major followers of culture when it comes to the primary thing that guides us and directs us in our lives. And by culture, I mean the media, politics, education, technological advances, and society as a whole. We just get caught up in it all. And so for us, if culture says to do something, if culture is into something, we tend to be into it. Even as Christians, I find, we have gotten very sold into culture today, and it tends to drive us very much in our lives to the point that it might be the major thing that we follow. How do you know if this is you? 
Well, I know some people who live for the next major purchase in their lives. When I chat with them about how their lives are going, it's always about the next thing they're going to get. Whether it be a car or an outfit or a set of clubs or whatever it might be, the next major purchase is all-consuming for us. And again, I know how we justify it. We call it researching our options, and yet God calls it an obsession. For some of us in our materialistic culture, we've bought into that bill of goods that that's what our lives are to be about, and we live for the next thing. Or if that doesn't hit you, how about sports? I got to tell you, I love sports. I watched college ball yesterday. I watched professional ball today. I watched professional ball tomorrow night. But I know some people, if their team doesn't win, it ruins their week. I know some people, if their team doesn't win, that's a mood setter for the whole next week until the next game, day, game comes around. And the reality is, is that if that happens to you, you bought in to something in our culture a little bit more than God wants you to. Or how about technological advances? I know people who live for the next piece of technology, people who live for the next medical advance, somehow thinking that if we can cure all ills, then life's going to be great. Guess what? It won't. Education is another example. Many people buy into the fact that education is a be-all and end-all. And again, don't get me wrong. I got these placed second, third, fourth, fifth in my life. All my kids are going to college. Kim and I have seen to that. And we're into education. It's just that it's not an all-consuming thing when it comes to the priorities of what I follow. For some, please see this, folks, if not many, culture is not just a part of our life. Let's be honest, it is our life. It's the primary thing that gives meaning, direction, and purpose to our daily living. Culture is the primary thing that we follow. And if you ever wonder, is there a pressure on you today to follow culture in our country? Yes, there is. In fact, the power of the media today to tell you day in and day out what you should do, what you should buy, what you should believe in, and what you should prioritize is more staggering than any other time in the history of the known world. Now, so check out these stats. Look up here on the screen. 2000 Census, uh, the United Census Bureau on media in the year 2000 listed that uh, at that time we had 257 million television sets in America. 257 million. That was up from 81 million in 1971, and that's an average of about two and a half television sets per household. And some of you are saying, big whip. Well, add to that the fact that it also showed we have 20,000 newspapers and periodicals, about 10,000 of each, and the fact that when you add in then radio and internet and billboards and TV and all the other things, and even the mail system, get this, in 1999, America spent over $215 billion on advertising. $215 billion advertisers spent to communicate to you and me what we should spend our money on, how we should cast our vote, how we should treat our kids, how we should prioritize our time, and you think this doesn't have a lot of power to tell you what you should believe and buy into? Of course it does. And it wouldn't be so bad if we were living back in Christendom, but the reality is, and we all know this, that the western part of the world, meaning Europe and America and, and, and the whole landmass of America, has now become a post-Christian, post-modern society where MTV has more of a voice than the Bible. I mean, that's the world that you and I live in. And so when you're spending $215 million in a post-Christian secular society to tell everybody what to believe and what to do, you better believe that has power. 
And so the choice that you and I have of whether to become a disciple of culture or not is not as easy as you think. We're bombarded with it every day, and as Christians, we need to be wise. Now, as you're thinking about that, I want you to notice a second thing that some of us follow in a general, general but powerful way, and it's specifically what I'm going to label as others. Others. And by others, I mean family, friends, cultural icons, historical figures, really any person in your life that exudes profound, life-shaping, life-guiding influence on you to the point, and I get this, that it becomes the primary thing that you follow. And so there are some in our world today, maybe even you, that form their opinions, the way they act, the way they dress, the way they think, the way they feel, based on what other people say, not as we're going to see in a second here on what God says. You know, I majored in psychology in my undergrad, and then I did my Master's of Divinity in Theology at Trinity Seminary. And I landed in Detroit in 1990 at my first pastor post, and I remember when I first got there, trying to get to know my secretary, we'll call her Cheryl. And so I was the associate pastor with a senior pastor and a youth pastor, a rather small church. And one day I was talking with Cheryl, and I said, so tell me your story. How did you come to Christ? What kind of church did you grow up in and all that? And she shared with me how she grew up in a church in which she was taught that you needed to be baptized in order to be saved. It's a non-truth. It's heresy. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that. But she was taught, because there's some narrow Christian tradition that teaches this, that if you weren't baptized, water baptized, then there's no way you could be a Christian. And she was taught that from the time that she was a little girl. And so as I was asking more about her journey, I said, well, Cheryl, how did you ever get to the point where you didn't believe that? I mean, how do you know that that's not true? And she said, well, Kevin told me it's not true. (laughs) I said, Kevin, our senior pastor. And she said, yeah. And again, I just got out of grad school, so I'm kind of a geek and all that. And I said, well, how do you know that Kevin's right? I mean, he went to Dallas Seminary, and I trust him too. But you know, guys from Dallas Seminary are wrong. Tell me you got something more than Kevin when it comes to you knowing that what you were taught was not right. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. I mean, she said, well, if Kevin says it's not right, then I just trust Kevin and I just assumed that it's not right. And I thought, well, you know, I know where Kevin got his idea, and that was from the Bible. And then I remembered a passage in the book of Acts in chapter 17 where it says that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they checked every day the word to see if what Paul was saying was true. In other words, the Bereans didn't even accept Paul the apostle at his word, They were going to check the Old Testament to make sure that it was corollary to what the Word taught. And I thought, you know, if my friend Cheryl would just have that mindset, it would probably serve her a lot better in life than just saying, Kevin said it. And though following others can be pretty safe, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't ever trust people what they say, the problem comes in, friends, when we follow others and it's the primary thing that we follow when it takes first place status in our lives instead of second or third place as God intended. Because you see, here's the theology behind it. Others are just as flawed as you. Others are just as flawed as culture. Where do you think culture comes from? It comes from others. And the danger that God says we need to be careful of with others in our lives is as good-hearted as they might be, they might be dead wrong in the things that they tell us. We're not ultimately to follow others. And so could it be that this is exactly what Peter was saying in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, 
when he says, and many will follow their, meaning others, sensuality, and because of them, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So he's saying that there will be a time when people take their cues from others, and in so doing, they're going to be led wrongly and miss the way that God has for them. Please see, folks, we all follow something or someone. And for some of us here today, we need to own our codependence, own the fact that we're enmeshed with those around us, and we've got to pry our fingers off that and place them, as we're going to see in a minute, onto Christ. Now, I, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, I, I tell you what, I don't follow others. I'm my own person. And, and culture, though a shaping influence, is not really what influences my life the most. No, I'm my own person. I follow what I believe, and I know what is right. And so admittedly, what I would say to you is that you follow then our third option, and that is self. You follow self. The unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. That's exactly what you follow. And you're not alone. There's plenty of Americans in that boat. Isn't it the American way to say, I know best, I know what is right, my discernment is just fine, thank you. I mean, you and I have been taught since we were little to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and allow our own personal principles, our own personal philosophy to be that which guides us. The only problem, as we're going to see in a minute, is that the Bible says that there was a time called the Judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes and it got them into trouble. And so the reality is, though it sounds so good when you're watching a PBS special or Dr. Phil or something like that to say, I live by what I think is right, the reality is, is at the end of the day, we're just buying into culture once again by living with this mantra that what I believe must be right, that what I discern about life must be what rules the day. Because here's the deal. By listening only to yourself, you will erect a barricade that will keep others and culture from influencing you, but at the same time, you're erecting the same barricade that's going to keep God from influencing you. Or to put it this way, if you erect self as the highest authority of which you are a disciple of, I follow me, then the Bible says by the very nature, you can't have two masters, you're not following God. And it's exactly what the Proverbs warned us of 3,000 years ago when it said this. Look up here on the screen, Proverbs 16, 25. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And though that sounds so ominous, I'm just telling you, you and I all have experienced this proverb on smaller levels, maybe some of you have on a big level, when it comes to our lives. We all know that this principle is true. If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning and I said, tell me about a time in your marriage, in your parenting, in your business, in your life, your personal choices, where you thought something was right, only to walk down that road, get halfway down and go, oops, this is not right, and then had a backtrack, if you ever had an experience like that, all of us have. All of us have had times in our life where we thought something was right, went down that path, only to find that we needed to come back down that path because it was the wrong path. And what you hope is that it's nothing big. You hope that it's not something that's going to financially set the course of your life or relationally set the course of your life or spiritually set the course of your life or really mess your children up. We all hope that doesn't happen. But we also are all wide-eyed enough to know that there are plenty of people that do that. And the thing that you and I need to wrestle with, does that just mean that they are evolutionary, not as advanced as the rest of us? That they're just big dopes who don't know any better? No. The reality is the Bible says, if you will, that we're all big dopes who don't know any better. 
that all of us have the capacity to think that we know right, only to be wrong. And that's the logic the Bible gives us of why we should not elevate self to be the ultimate thing that we follow. But again, we're given messages every day. Remember, $215 billion of messages that tell us that self is what we should follow. Again, I'm going to date myself here, but think of the commercials that you and I were raised on. I'm 47 years old, so I, I heard commercials growing up like this. I believe in crystal light because I believe in me. Do you guys remember that commercial? I used to gag at that commercial. I'm like going, I believe in crystal light. Oh, I really don't believe in crystal light, but even if I did, I believe in me? I was a brand new Christian when that came out. I said, I don't believe in me. I believe it was we're seeing a minute in Jesus. Or how about the Burger King thing we're all raised with? Have it your way at Burger King, right? Have it your way, as if somehow your way is the only way. Your way is the best way. Again, it's the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Advertising's really good at that, at propping us up as the pinnacle of creation, as the highest thing to follow, and the reality is it's not. Because you see, there's a fourth option, and this brings us full swing to what discipleship is about. There's a fourth option of what God calls us to follow, or more likely, who God calls us to follow. And many of you guessed it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Or I put in parentheses there, God, because it's the same thing. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the incarnation, the appearance of God. 2,000 years ago on this earth, he came to us fully human, fully God, to do something for ourselves that we couldn't do for ourselves, and that is to bring a forgiving relationship to God, to reality. We'll get to that in a minute here. And God calls us to follow him. In fact, it's fascinating. When you look closely at the Gospels, over and over again, Jesus says two very simple but profound words to people he meets. What does he say? He says, follow me. Follow me. At Matthew 4, 19, when Jesus called the very first disciples, it says he said to them, follow me. And then to Matthew himself, he said, follow me. To an unknown disciple in Matthew 8, he said, follow me. To the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he said, follow me. As we're going to explore in a minute here, to you and me, he's going to say the same thing. He's going to say, follow me. Why? Because as we've already established, he knows that we are formed for following, that we're all going to choose to follow something. And by all means, he doesn't want us following culture. And by all means, he doesn't want us following self. And he doesn't want us following others. Ultimately, the master he wants us to have is himself because he knows our lives are best when we follow him. And so the Bible says to follow Jesus. Because you, you see, here's the second thing you need to know about following, and this is going to hit some of you where it hurts, but this is really true. And that is that the Bible makes it clear that God is so concerned that we follow Jesus because you become what you follow. It's true, and we all know this to be true. You become what you follow. Or put it this way, follow something long enough and faithful enough in your life, whether it be culture, self, others, or things, or Jesus, and it will have life-shaping influence on the kind of person you become. We teach this to our children. Why shouldn't we apply it to ourselves? You tell your children that you are what you eat. You tell your children that you are what you think. You tell your children that you are how you behave. And what you need to know is that God says the same thing. He says you become what you follow. One of the most powerful passages on this is Romans 12, verse 2, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the New Testament. It's kind of in a warning tone, but also very positive in nature. Look at what it says. This is very revealing. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Converse there, or compare there, uh, conformed, 
versus transformed. It says don't conform, but transform. Some of you engineers are going to love this. That word conform, when it was written 2,000 years ago in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, is the Greek word schematizo, where we get our English word schematic from. And as you know, a schematic is simply a design that you follow. It's a set of plans that engineers use to build something or to design something. And so what the word means is that you conform to the same pattern of something around you. And in this context here, it's saying that there's a great temptation, we've already seen this today, for you and me to conform to the pattern of our world around us, to follow it, to be a disciple of it, And what Romans is saying here is don't conform to that, but be transformed as you follow Jesus Christ. It's saying you need to be careful of all the things that vie for your attention as a follower of Jesus because before you know it, you're going to be stuck in the rut of this world if you're not very careful. So again, you engineers will love this. I found a great illustration this week that, uh, that, that shows this, I think, in, in, in some wonderful pictures. I'll show you here in a minute. Uh, but as we get into this illustration, let me ask you a question for those of you who are classic dorks among us like me. And that is, do you know what the United States Railroad Standard Gauge is in America today? In other words, how far apart are railroad tracks width-wise in America? Does anybody know? Yes, what is it? It's the width of a Roman chariot, which precisely is four feet, eight and a half inches wide. She's right. A Roman chariot was four feet and eight and a half inches wide. That's now the U.S. standard railroad gauge. And the question that all of you should be asking, because I know you're really into this illustration, is how did we come up with four feet, eight and a half inches wide? And our friend here just helped us with that. It goes all the way back to the Roman days, 2,000 years. So look up here on the screen. Uh, When the Romans built their famous Roman roads across the Middle East, what is now Eastern Europe and Western Europe, they built ruts in these stone roads that were approximately about four and a half feet wide, four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And they did that for the Roman chariots. And, and, And ironically, when that era ended and they brought in the next era, which would have been the era of horse drawn carriages, they found, ironically, that the width of two rear ends of horses fit rather neatly, this is true, in about four and a half feet. And so what they did when they brought in horse-drawn carriages, they decided to keep the same standard because the ruts were already built about four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Then we went on in technology. And when they built the British tramways, they realized that the roads were already set, the ruts were already there, so the tramway wheels, you guessed it, were about four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Then they invented railroads. And instead of reinventing everything, they made the railroads four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And then we could have broken the chain here in the United States, but as much as we didn't want to be like Britain, why not adopt British standards? So in the United States, we made railroad tracks four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And this is really going to blow you away. When we invented solid rocket boosters for sending people up into space on the aircraft, Guess about how wide a solid rocket booster is. Four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Do you know why? Because you had to put them on railroad tracks and put them through railroad tunnels to get them from where they were made to where they would have been launched. And though engineers wanted them to be made bigger, they said we're going to have to widen all the bridges to do that, so you've got to keep them roughly four and a half feet. 
So a Roman invention 2,000 years ago affected a solid rocket booster today. And what I need you guys to see, the point of that illustration, is that one phase of technology simply conformed to the previous phase. They used the previous schematic. The chain was never broken. The schematic was never changed. It became what has followed to the point that we're stuck with it today. And the point is, is that Christians do this all the time. We do this all the time. Like a railroad track passed down from one generation to another, we conform to what the world has set before us. Uh, folks, this is sobering, but, but dial into this. I mean, our world basically says we want you to be four feet, eight and a half inches wide in the value choices that you make and the things that you prioritize and what you are about. And Jesus came to this earth and he said, hogwash. Don't be four and a half feet wide. Be a little bit wider at times. Be a little bit narrower at times. But by all means, do not conform to the pattern of this world. This is not my Father's world. You're only passing through. You're not supposed to get too comfortable here. It will be dangerous to your soul to do so. And yet the temptation you and I have every day is to stay in the rut. To stay in the rut of culture. And I don't mean to rain on anybody's parade today, but golly, folks, we got to wrestle with this because as a pastor, I see this stuff happen every day to well-meaning Christians, and I just go, we're selling the farm. But what am I talking about? I mean, I know this is going to hurt some of you, but let's just be honest in the house of God today. The world sleeps together before they get married, and so do 80% of Christians. The world has a 50% divorce rate, and so do Christians. The world gets all materialistic and into debt, and so do many Christians. The world lashes out at anger at their enemies, and so do many Christians. The world questions God in difficult times and doubts his goodness, and I'm telling you as a pastor, so many Christians. The world puts before you and me four feet, eight and a half inches wide, and Christians ride the train. That's what we do. And God comes along and says, that's not a disciple. If you're going to be my disciple, you're not going to follow culture at large. You're not going to follow others. You're not going to follow self. There'll be some of that in there. But by and large, your master, first place priority, is going to be my son, Jesus Christ. Do not conform. Follow Jesus because you are formed for following something, and it's him that he wants you to choose. And so let's look at that universal call. Here's our wrap-up point. And that is, you've already heard it already today, and that is that Jesus calls each of us to follow him. It's not complicated. It's just really hard. And so look at how, I promised this to you earlier, I promised this to you earlier, look at how Jesus gives this call for you and me to follow to every one of us. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, and he, Jesus, said to all, man, if you underline your Bible, underline that. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross daily, now say it with me, and follow me. Say it again, and follow me. That's what he says. I want you to notice two things about that passage. This is not rocket science. One, it's a universal call to all. It says, and he said to all. Now, obviously, that meant all that was present back then, but because Jesus knew this would be recorded as Scripture, one could safely assume he's saying it to all who would eventually read these words. He said to all. And what did he say? He wants us to follow. And what I need you to see more than anything, folks, because this bears on you today, is that it's a choice. 
The pattern that Jesus set before us there is that we need to lay something down, we need to take something up, and we need to get moving. All those are choices. We make a choice of what we're going to lay down, Jesus says yourself. We make a choice of what we're going to take up, he says our cross, his cross. And then he says, you're going to make a choice on which direction you're going to get moving in. And he says, move in the direction of following me. He says, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Because we are formed to follow something or someone, and he wants it to be him. So how do we do this? How do we follow him? I want to leave you with four thoughts very, very quickly on how to follow Jesus Christ. And I didn't know this till this morning because I didn't put a lot of this together till, <laughs> till Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But the, the, I realized this morning when I listed out these four things uh, uh, that, that it follows the acrostic lost, which is like a really bad acrostic for what we're talking about. But that's what it came out to. And lost stands for listen, obey. What's the T stand for? Tru uh, as sacrifice and trust. See how easy to remember? Listen, obey, sacrifice, and trust. So look up here on the screen. Uh, we're supposed to listen to Jesus Christ. A follower listens. I, I love how Jesus said it at one point in this world. He said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. You see the link there between listening and following? And you and I all know that. We know that if somebody is ever going to become a follower of somebody else, they've got to learn to listen. So how do you listen to Jesus? Two ways, through his word and through his Holy Spirit who lives inside you who believe. That's what the Bible says. So the Bible, first and foremost, is how we listen to God. That's why we need to have devotions and study the Bible and become students of it so we can learn to listen to God. But then secondly, once we get the Bible, we then listen to his still small voice through his spirit in our conscience. And so between the Word and our conscience, we learn to listen to God in our lives. And once you learn to listen to Him, the second step becomes very important if you're a disciple, and that is that you obey Him. Again, not a, not a word that we use very much today, certainly not a word that's very friendly to many of us, but Jesus loved this word. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and make myself known to him. So there's a link there between his commandments and following him out of relationship and knowing him personally, becoming his disciple. And all I can tell you, folks, is as much as we might not use or like this word obedience today, all of us like it at the end of the day. If you have kids or grandkids, you love this concept of obedience, don't you? I mean, honestly, we train our kids this way. We might not use the word anymore. We might not say, you're not obeying me. But the reality is, is that we live like that. I mean, what good parent, if he was visiting or she was visiting the Grand Canyon and your little toddler was running toward the ledge and you couldn't grab him or her, what good parent wouldn't yell, stop? And what good parent wouldn't want their kid to obey them right at that point, right? It's just that there's sometimes where God yells at you and me in the midst of our craziness and he says, stop. And we go, God, you're raining on my parade. God, I'm, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to have to obey you. We have all these excuses as to why we won't obey and God says, you want your kid to stop before running off a ledge? I want you to stop before you run off a ledge. Why? Because I love you that much. That's what God says. Because I want to be in relationship with you. I want to spend eternity with you. I want you to know life this side of heaven. But you're not going to know it unless you become a disciple of my son Jesus. And to become his disciple, you need to listen and you need to obey. That's why that list of stuff I read earlier that's kind of embarrassing for us as Christians is so important. Because as much as we follow the rut of this world and not obey God, 
is to the degree that we're not his followers. Third thing he calls us to do is sacrifice. This is hard for some of us, but it's part of following. Jesus couldn't be more clear in Matthew 19, 28 and 29. He says, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, drudging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now get this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Do you get the sense of sacrifice here? No following is ever complete without sacrifice. It doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work with parenting. It doesn't work at your job. It doesn't work with your friendships. Guess what? It doesn't work with God. If you want to have following without sacrifice, God says you're not really following. And part of following Jesus is going to entail some sacrifices for you and me. I've said this to you guys before, but when I accepted Christ at the age of 18, I lost my three best friends. It's kind of juvenile for high school kids to not want to hang around each other if there's not going to be partying anymore, but I remember my best friend asked me when I got saved, he said, well, are you going to do this anymore? Are you going to do this anymore with me? I said, no, I'm a follower of Jesus now. He said, bye. I haven't talked to him since. I know adults that experience the same thing. I can show you emails that people have shared with me over the years of major sacrifices people have made in their vocations, in their family relationships, and whatever, to put Jesus first. Because following involves sacrifice. So part of what you need to ask yourself today is what kind of sacrifices am I making to follow Jesus? If you find none, you might want to ask yourself how much you're really following. And then the last component to following, again, you have listening, obeying, sacrificing, and then trusting. Again, Jesus said in John 14, he said, believe in God, believe also in me. That word believe there is the Greek word pastuo, which literally means to believe or trust. And he's saying, trust me as a follower of me. As you sacrifice, as you obey, as you listen, put your full weight upon me. That's how you keep me first. Each moment of each day. And as you do that, you will become my follower. So I want to say it to you in a sentence as we go to the communion table here. Look up here on the screen. Here's what I want you to take into you this week, into your week this week. And that is simply that you were formed for following Christ. That's the point. That you were formed for following Christ. Two things you need to know there. You were formed for following something. Every one of us, don't ever escape that. Every one of us are formed for following something. And God ultimately formed each of us for following his son, Jesus Christ. But it's your choice. So as you think about it this week, I hope, even think about it right now, that you make the choice to follow Jesus. I made that choice 30 years ago, and though there have been plenty of ups and downs and gone down roads, I never thought that God would take me down like I was least voted to ever be a pastor in my senior class of high school. I can tell you right now, I have never, ever regretted the decision to follow Jesus. Never. Because even in the midst of all the difficulty, He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I would want my life to be no other place than directly behind Him following. And I hope you do the same. I'm going to pray right now for the communion table. For those of you who are ready to receive Christ today, to become a follower of him, I'm going to pray with you right now. For the rest of you, I'm going to pray that God continues to strengthen you in your faith. So why don't you bow with me right now as we go to the table. Father God, um, there are some of us here today that as we hear following put in this light, we now finally understand what a disciple is. It's a follower and ultimately a follower of Jesus. And Lord, as we hear the challenge to listen, to obey, 
to sacrifice and to trust, I pray, God, that there might be some of us here today that are ready to become followers of Jesus for the very first time. And so, Father, right where these folks sit, they admit that their sin has separated them from you. They admit their need for a Savior and that his name is Jesus. And they want to accept him into their lives right now as Savior and as Lord. And they make a decision to do that right where they sit. Father, I pray that as anybody has made a decision today to follow Christ, that, God, you might encourage them greatly in their lives, that they have crossed over from death to life, from not knowing you to knowing you, from slavery to freedom, as the Scriptures would say. Lord, give them that initial burst of joy. And, Father, for the rest of us who have already accepted Christ but have an up-and-down battle with this thing called following, I pray, God, that if we're in a time where it's ebbing right now and not flowing, that, God, you'd encourage us that we're just one choice away from following you wholeheartedly once again. And as we go to this communion table, we might make that choice now. Help us to jettison culture and others and self as the primary thing we follow. May it be your son, Jesus. So meet us at this table now, I pray. Lord, encourage us with the symbols that these are, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ that has given us freedom from sin and to know you deeply. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.